Nation. Uh, when we started in, at Flood in San Diego back in 2000, our, the way we stated it is we want to create environments, spaces, and opportunity for people to uh, encounter the living God and be transformed by his presence. And so I, we share that desire and that commitment, not just to know about God, but to encounter and experience God in the midst of our daily life challenges and opportunities. God meets us where we are, and we're grateful for it. Amen? And so as we start today uh, in this series, I think a fundamental question that this series is addressing, and who are you looking for, not what are you looking for, but who are you looking for, is what is your picture of God? When you think about God, what thoughts, what images do you associate with him? And that's really significant. And um, I'm going to start with a couple quotes. And uh, I enjoy a good quote. And so uh, A.W. Tozer said, the most important thing about any person is what they think about when they think about God. The most important thing about any person is what they think about when they think about God. And then Dallas Willard, who was a philosophy professor at University of Southern California, he passed away of pancreatic cancer in 2013. Uh, a book, a biography of his life came out a couple years ago, and I heard his grown daughter, his adult daughter, say about Dallas, my dad consistently lived everything he taught and believed. And I'm just a, I think I'm a huge fan of that. I think you're a huge fan of that. We, we want those who are leading us pointing us to Jesus to live lives consistent, not perfect, but consistent with what they're proclaiming. And I, when I heard his daughter say that, because let's be honest, my wife Roxanne and I have two sons and two daughters. They know the truth about who I am. They know where I fall short. And for them to say about me, my dad consistently lived everything he said, everything he taught it. Everything he taught it? Yeah, everything he taught would be high praise. And so I, I value that. And as I bring down, apparently I wanted you to know that about Dallas as I bring this simple quote, this simple but important quote from him to us today. He said, the single most important thing about us is our idea of God and its associated images. Again, the single most important thing about us is our idea of God and its associated images. Now you might not agree with Tozer and Willard, but the that the picture we hold of God is the most important thing about us. You may be able to think of something that is even more important. For example, I, I do think it's really important. I think these two things go together. But I love what, love what scholar James K.A. Smith said. He said, we are what we love. Not just what we say we believe, that we are what we love. And Jesus said it like this. You honor me with your lips. In other words, you're singing and saying right things about who I am. So in one sense, you're believing the right things, but your hearts are far from me, right? So it's a both and. It's what we think about God, and it's about our desires. Do we desire God? Do we desire to follow him? Uh, Jesus, I, I love Jesus' question asked, what do you want me to do for you? He asked James and John that. What do you want me to do for you? And they're like, hey, well, when you come into your kingdom, you need two good people by your right and your left, and we know a couple guys, James and John, have you heard of them? You call them the sons of thunder. We would be awesome in your administrative executive cabinet cabinet, because we got some ideas about how things need to go. You know, like, can you imagine the audacity of that? And Jesus says, hey, uh, you have no idea what you're asking for. I don't think this means what you think it means. But 
But he asked the question, right? He wants to know, what's your desire? What do you care about? What do you love? Because he knows what you love is what you'll prioritize. What you love is what you'll commit your time, energy, and resources toward. And so our hearts, not just our thoughts, our hearts are also important. Both are true. So what's your picture of God? Why is that a picture of God so important? I think these guys understood we become like the God we worship. We become like the God we worship. If we believe that God not only, lo- is not, not only loves, but that he is love, then the more I center my life on him, the more loving I will become. We become like the God we worship. If, however, I actually hold a picture of God that is he, he's critical and angry, I will gradually become an angrier person. If I worship a trustworthy God, I will have an easier time trusting God and trusting other people. But if my image of God is that he is unreliable, I will become increasingly anxious and controlling. That's why the early 20th century Anglican priest, William William Temple once said, if we have a negative picture of God, the more religious we become, the worse it gets. Huh? Run that back. If we have a negative picture of God, the more religious we become, the worse it gets. Damaged image of God, we're going to damage people. That's why what our thoughts on God are, why our thoughts on God are so important. Temple understood that our view of God affects everything else including how we read the Bible, how we interpret and relate to suffering, and how we view each other and treat each other. There's no area of our lives that is untouched by the picture we hold of God, even and maybe especially if that picture is largely unconscious to us, which leads, us, leads me to the next thing I wanna say as an introductory comment. There is often, for many of us, a gap between our professed images of God the things we say we believe about him, and our default pictures of God. The ideas we hold deep down, perhaps unaware, which are profoundly shaping us. So we might say, we might profess, God is loving and faithful and generous and beautiful, but we need to pay attention to how we relate to God and conceive of him when difficult circumstances arise. Our default pictures of God show up more in times of stress. When something bad happens, if your default picture of of God is that he is good and loving, then your instinctive response to hardship might be something like, this is hard. This sucks. But thank you for being with me as I go through this. And maybe if you're feeling a bit adventurous when you're going through hardship, you might even be so bold as to ask God, what invitation might you have for me in this hard thing? But if your default picture of God is that he is harsh or unloving, untrustworthy, then your instinctive response might be to hardship, something more like, why are you doing this to me? Or why are you allowing this to happen? Or I know I'm being punished. And our default pictures of God, how we see God, uh, depends on where we came to faith, how we've been formed, it shapes how we've been formed so far, where we were raised, And so there's a whole range of default pictures of God that I think are fairly common that you may be contending with this morning. You may have a picture of God as an exacting, 
perfectionistic parent or maybe even as a military officer, one who just can't wait to send anyone who steps out of line straight to hell. Or you may have a picture of a distant or indifferent God. You may have a picture of God that he's well-meaning but he's incompetent or ineffective. He'd like to help but his hands are tied. Or maybe you have an idea of God that he's benevolent but he's like a benevolent old grandfather who just wants you to have a nice time and would never challenge you to actually grow. You may have a picture of God that he is chronically disappointed in you. I think this is an image of God that impacts me. This sense that God is mildly disappointed in me. Like as in, Matt, you should be further along than you are. I mean, here's where you are and here's where you really should be. What's the deal? When are you gonna get this thing figured out? I'm hoping for more from you. That was a little disappointing at nine o'clock, right? Like mildly disappointed. So what is your image of God? So we have a professed, this is who God is. He's good, he's kind, he's generous, but what do we actually believe? And Jesus was grieved when he walked the earth of people's distorted and damaged pictures of God, maybe even especially some of the religious leaders' idea of God. And so he would say to his disciples, when you see me, you see the Father. If your idea of God is that he doesn't look an awful lot like Jesus, you don't have an accurate picture of God. And Jesus told a story in Luke 15 called the parable of the prodigal son that was addressing who God is. Right, the parable of the prodigal. He insults his father, he shames his community, he says, dad, I wish you were dead, give me my inheritance, and then he proceeds to waste his inheritance, and then he's like, okay, I'm, I'm starving, I can go back home, I'll be my dad's servant. And he, there's this picture of not this reluctant, distant, angry, critical father, but a father who longs for his sons and daughters to come home. And as soon as they take one step towards home, he, like that's good enough, he runs out to greet them. So maybe a way of getting around this is, what is, what is you, what, what do you, when you think of God, what is his posture towards you this morning? You're standing before God. What is his posture towards you? What's his posture? Is his arms crossed and he's shaking his head again, really, seriously, here we are again? Or is it your... Does he have a clenched fist? Like, you're, you're about to get it from me. You do that one more time, that's the end of the line for you. Or does God have his back turned to you? Like, I can't even, ugh, disgust me. Or is God, your posture of God towards you? God's posture towards you, Zephaniah 3.17. God delights in you so much so that he sings over you. You ever had someone sing over you? We had some ladies greet us in a village yesterday here in Malawi and they sang to us. That kind of felt good, you know? God, the God who created all things, who wants to embrace you in his love, delights in you. He doesn't just love you, he likes you and he delights in you. Oh, that's my son, Humphreys. I'm singing over you. Right, you maybe sing over your kids. God sings over you. 
Does that, is that your image of God, that he delights in you so much he can't help but sing when he sees you? My daughter's here. You're like, please don't sing, Matt. Uh, what's your picture of God and how is it impacting you? I think that's really important as we walk through the series. This morning we're looking at Genesis 16, a story that may be unfamiliar to you. You may be more familiar with the story of Abraham and Sarah, of which this story sits in, but it's the story of Hagar. And it's an unfamiliar story. It's a difficult story. It's an often over-spiritualized story. But I'm just going to name it right from, from, from the start here. It's uncomfortable. I mean, in this story appears polygamy and slavery. Thanks, Pastor Humphreys, for this text. No, I, I appreciate it. And the guys I get to travel with, Derek and Jason on this trip, they're great guys, great brothers in Christ, been a part of our church family for a long time. And they're gonna come up and read God's word to us today in Genesis 16, one through, Genesis 16, one through 16. And they're gonna say, instead of Abram and Sarai, which is their names at the beginning of their journey, they're gonna jump ahead in the future and they're gonna refer to them as I am in the message as Abraham and Sarah, same people. But just we're more familiar with those terms, so let's just jump there. And the thing about these two guys I want you to know about is they're, they're two of the most faithful guys involved in our global ministry as a church in San Diego. Uh, Jason primarily here in Malawi and Derek primarily in, in northern Uganda. So I'm grateful for this opportunity. And I'd love for you to hear God's word through them today. So Derek and Jason, come on up. And then church family, would you stand for the reading of God's word? It's a, it's a posture of, a, of attentiveness, standing. Like, I'm ready, Lord. Let's go. Bring the word to me. Speak, Lord. Your servants are listening. Amen? All right. Good morning, everyone. Genesis 16, 1 through 16. Now Sarah, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abraham, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go, sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abraham agreed to what Sarah said. So after Abraham had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarah, his wife, took her Egyptian slave Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarah said to Abraham, you are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands, Abraham said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarah mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarah, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarah, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, Go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, You are now pregnant, and you will give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. He will live in hostility toward all his brothers. So she gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, 
I have now seen the one who sees me. That is why the well was called Bir Lanai Roy. It is still there between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abraham a son, and Abraham gave the name Ishmael to the son she had borne. Amen. That's God's word to us this morning, Flood Church family. Uh, may we be blessed through the reading of God's uh, written and inspired word. You may be seated. So part of what this series is addressing is how do we think about God was our picture of God. And I mentioned Jesus telling the story of the prodigal son. And I want to say this to you as you think about how you view God this morning. If your view of God is that he is not at least as loving as the prodigal's father, you have work to do. Let me include myself in that statement. If our image of God is that he is not at least as loving as the prodigal's father, then we have work to do. And let me just jump ahead. We have work to do in understanding who God is. And part of the work we have to do is to say to the Lord, Lord, show me who you are. Reveal yourself to me through your word. Reveal yourself to us through your spirit, through your presence with us. Help us to know you. And one of the ways we know God is we know God in community together. It's as I see God reflected in your life, as I see God reflected in this community, it allows me to know a God who is fundamentally relational, who exists in a perfect community of loving persons known as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the triune God. A God who is fundamentally relational. And so sometimes we say, when you have nothing else but God, then you know for the first time that God alone is enough. The problem with that statement is that God never intended us to be alone. Right? The way, God isn't enough from the standpoint of how he made us. Right? That's why when he looked at Adam after everything that was good, he's like, here's what's not good. This guy's by himself. That's not a commentary on marriage. It's just like a commentary on human community. Here's what's not good for human beings to live in isolation. It's never meant to be that way. We are not at our best when we're alone. It can be easier at times to be alone because some people, I mean, not you and me, but some people can be difficult. You know what I'm saying? They can be, I mean, you're, you're a gift, but some of the people around you, sometimes, every once in a while, they can be difficult. But, but in that difficulty is where we know and experience the reality of who God is. Amen. That's just, that's, oh, so what's your picture of God? And then secondly, in this passage specifically, how do we suffer well? That's a fun question. How do we suffer well? How do we suffer with hope? And the, 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 how, we, how we suffer well is we understand the pain of those who are suffering. We understand the pain of the oppressed. We understand God's promise to the oppressed. And we understand the hope of the oppressed. So that's three truths that we can anchor to in this text. And then there's not only three truths, but bonus, there's two images I want you to hold on to of how we suffer well. Image one is the barrenness of soul that is a part of the human condition. We are empty and we know we're empty and we are constantly striving to fill the emptiness of our soul with the things that we and our culture tells us we need most, which only makes us more empty. Barrenness of soul that we see here played out in Sarah's story and the stream in the desert. Those are the images, right? Barrenness of soul, emptiness, the stream in the desert. That it's often in our lowest points, 
our greatest trials that we experience the reality of God. In fact, one of the gospel addresses that Jesus affirms in the gospel, hey, where can we find God? Well, we know God is everywhere, right? Psalm 139, where can I go from your spirit? If I go up to the mountains, you're there. If I go down to the depths, you're there. No matter where I am, you are. So we know that's true, but then there's an experience of the manifest presence of God. And God says, Jesus says, whenever two or three are gathered in my name, there I am. Well, are you with me when I'm alone? Sure, but if you really wanna experience me with you, gather with other people in my my name, because you'll experience a God of community in community. Then he says, you know where else I am? I am present in the, with the, those who are poor and hurting and suffering. If you want to know where God is, God seems distant, then go to, to those who are hurting and suffering, not just so you can help, great, but so that you can experience Jesus through what he's doing in the midst of that situation. Gospel addresses. Here's another gospel address where you can find God. The table, where God says, Jesus says, this is my body, this is my blood. All right. Woo, we're just having some church. We're just getting going, all right? How do we suffer? We have to understand the pain of the oppressed. So Sarah is suffering in this account, in this story. Abraham, to a lesser extent, is suffering Hagar, their servant, their slave, is suffering. There's a barrenness of soul. And part of this, this conversation in the story, it's a question of identity. What does it mean to be a worthwhile human being? What is the basis of your worth? How do you know that, you're, that you matter, that you're okay, that you're a person of worth and value? Well, our culture, our culture, whether it's in Malawi or the United States, has answers to that question. We'll tell you how you know you could be somebody. Do this. In America, it's be thin. And so we have an epidemic of eating disorders because we bombard our culture with false and fake images of what it means to be good and beautiful. It means you look like that. Perfection is thinness. And it's oppressive. It's wreaking havoc in the lives of our young people. So we can read this text and say, man, this ancient text is oppressive. Because it is. But then we can be blind to the oppression that exists in our culture. You're like, Matt, we're not blind to it. Part of the oppression of Malawian culture is systemic and paralyzing poverty. It's oppressive. It's painful. So God says we have to understand the pain of the oppressed. And in Hagar's situation, she has been being mistreated unjustly by those in power over her. Oppression is a prolonged state of suffering due to unjust treatment. So Jesus gave us this promise that none of us want. In this world, you're going to have this. T-R-O-U-B-L-E. Trouble. Problems. Issues. Whether you believe in Jesus or not, you know he's like, yeah, he knew something about that. That is true. I'll look around and there's trouble. There are problems. In fact, anyone in here ever experienced a little bit of trouble in your life at any point in your life? Anybody experiencing trouble today? Anyone going through a time of trouble, of difficulty, of suffering? And he says, but take heart. I've overcome the world. Oppression does not have the last word. Injustice does not have the last word. Sin does not have the last word. Death does not have the last word. God does. 
And God's last word is love. God's last word is renewal. God's last word is resurrection. God says, behold, I'm making everything new. You're like, are you though? Because as I'm looking around, my eyes are telling me a different story. He's like, oh, don't be deceived, Matt. I am present and at work, and I guarantee you this. Take this to the bank, Standard Bank or any bank. I am making all things new. Believe that, and let's go. My kingdom is present. My kingdom is accessible. All right, I better get into these points. All right. In fact, Juanita Weems says this. She's a scholar in the United States, and she rightly points out that for black women, the Hagar story is a haunting one. It resonates powerfully. We need to, she says, we need to hear and be aware of the, pain and, and, of, of the pain and oppression that's happening here. Now, Abraham is not helping Sarah out, right? Sarah's culture is telling her, you're not somebody as a woman, you're not a person of worth and value unless you're bearing children. And not just children, unless you're bearing sons. That's what, that was their culture definition of success. And she had, had not been able to have sons and she was getting older. So she's doing the math. And she's like, I'm letting my husband down. I'm letting my culture down. Because not only was she gonna give, supposed to give a son to her husband, that son was based on a promise of God that she, not had, she hadn't talked to God yet, but her husband's saying, hey, God gave me this promise. I know you, we've been struggling with not being able to have kids, but it gets better. God's given us a promise. And God, through you and me, is gonna bring a son. He's gonna bring a people. That people are gonna become a nation. And through that nation, God's gonna save the entire world. The Messiah's coming through our family. You wanna talk about some pressure. Like I didn't even have a, have a son and you're telling me I'm letting you down? I'm letting my culture down? I'm letting my people down? I'm letting the whole world down. I'm letting God down. She, she's suffering. That's an oppressive thing to carry. And so she's doing the math. She's doing the best she can. And she's like, I'm not going to have a child. Uh, so I better make something happen. I know what I'll do. I'll do what happens in our polygamous culture. I'll give my servant, my slave, Hagar, to my husband so that we can, she can bear a son. I'll adopt that son. I'm in charge here. That son will become my son. But so she does that. And then as soon as she does that, there's pain in that offering. And then Hagar begins to mistreat Sarah, but Sarah's in a position of power. So Sarah begins to mistreat Hagar. In fact, it says this. Verse four, when she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarah said to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong I'm suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Everyone grow up with the song, Father Abraham had many sons, many sons had Father Abraham, and I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord, right hand, left hand. And he's held up in the New Testament as a model of faith. But don't let that mislead you. Father Abraham was a broken man. 
Father Abraham had some serious issues. So he says to his wife in this situation, this is not my responsibility. Sure, I put this expectation and this promise on you, but you gave me Hagar, right hand, left hand. Here we go, right? It's just like, <laughs> nine o'clock didn't get that. I took it to a different level at this one. But, but uh, so it's not my responsibility. You know, things would be a lot better in life if we would do this one simple thing. Take responsibility for the life that God's given us and stop complaining and blaming other people. When we're complaining and blaming, here's what we're doing. We're avoiding the issue that we have some say-so over. Oh, this person and this, it's like, there are things worth complaining about, but just gotta, we gotta be careful with that. So Abraham says like, hey, she's your employee, not my problem, you solve it. He's putting, a, Father Abraham's putting a burden on his wife that she was not meant to carry. And so then Hagar gets pregnant. She runs out. She, she, oh, it says this in verse six. Then Sarah mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. Think about this. You have a wealthy and powerful Sarah. So part of a, oppression comes from those in power who are unjustly and unfairly treating fellow human beings. That's the particular kind of suffering that Hagar's going through. It's so bad. Scholars say that Sarah's, when it says she mistreated her, that's a soft way of saying what she was likely doing. She was physically beating her, a pregnant woman. It had to be so bad that Hagar said, here's my option, stay here and put up with this or flee into the Egyptian desert that's not gonna end well. A single woman on her own in the ancient world traveling by herself in the middle of nowhere, like that's her better option? That's how hopeless she was. That's the pain of the oppressed. That's God's promise to the oppressed as he says to Hagar, something very similar that he had said to Abraham, I'm gonna give you many descendants. This is not where your story ends. It's not the end of the road. I'm actually gonna give you the blessing of many, many children. You notice that there's a point though where Hagar is also mistreating Sarah, like she's despising Sarah. Do you know why she's despising Sarah? Because their culture said to be a woman is to give birth to children. Hagar's like, I'm pregnant. You can't get pregnant. Like, I'm looking down on you. So she's all puffed up. I'm meeting society's standards, and clearly you're not. One of us is a person of worth and value, and one of us is not. And Sarah, feeling less than, begins to take her pain and transmit it to Hagar. Here's the thing, the stream in the desert, as Hagar's fleeing, God meets her at a stream in the desert. God meets her in her place of great pain, that's, the, that's the, the promise to the oppressed and the hope of the oppressed. All right, we need to wrap this up. The, the angel of the Lord asks Hagar two questions. Where have you come from and where are you going? Where have you come from? Where are you going? Hagar only answers one of those two questions. Why? Because she has no idea where she's going. That's a picture of hopelessness. That's a picture of desperation. She says, I'm coming from Abraham's house. And the angel of the Lord says, well, you need to go back there. 
There's no future for you where you're headed. You have to go back. Even though I know it's painful, even though I know it's difficult, you have to go back. Says the angel of the Lord. When Hagar's reflecting back on that moment of encountering God, she says, God said to me, God sees me. Verse 13, God, she doesn't say the angel sees me. She says, God sees me. The angel of the Lord is the Lord himself, right? When Moses experiences God in the burning bush, it says the angel of the Lord appeared in the burning bush. When, uh, J- when Jacob is wrestling with God in Genesis, he's at wrestling with the angel of the Lord. He says, the Lord blessed me. Uh, Joshua, when he meets this being that's dressed as a military commander, the, uh, the, the commander of the Lord of hosts, an angel of the Lord. It's God himself. Hagar is experiencing God. And she says in verse 13, she gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. She used a singular uh, first person pronoun for God, Yahweh. The God who is sees me. He sees me in my pain. He sees me in my suffering. And he meets me in the midst of it. And part of the miracle of Hagar, I don't know about you, but I love stories with happy endings. Hagar met a prince who valued her and esteemed her highly, and they lived happily ever after. Suddenly a rainbow appeared, and Hagar followed it. And at the end of the rainbow was this pot of gold, and all her financial worries dissipated. Yay! You know the miracle of Hagar is the miracle of resiliency, of endurance in the midst of very painful and difficult circumstances. She went back to Abraham and Sarah and life for her was not easy, but she, by the grace of God, endured. You're like, that doesn't feel enough. She is going to ultimately experience healing, I believe, but she's not going to experience all the healing now. She's going to experience the abundant life Jesus promised us, but we're not going to experience it all now. That's a hard tension to wrestle with. The Apostle Peter said it like this. Cast all your cares on him. Spent three years almost every day with Jesus, God in the flesh. Said this, hey, when you're experiencing trouble, when your heart is weighed down, bring all of that and cast it on God. Share it with God. Why? Because he sees you. He understands you. He empathizes with you. Not just at a distance. God who sees you suffered for you. The God who sees your pain himself experienced pain. He knows what it's like to live in a place of poverty. He knows what it's like to have those closest to him betray him, to reject him, to die a painful death. He's not saying it from like this distance. He's saying, I know what pain is. I'm the God who weeps. I'm the God who bleeds. And Peter experienced that with Jesus. And so he said this, bring your trouble to him. Cast all your cares upon him because he'll fix it all. He doesn't say that. He says, because he cares for you. That's what Hagar's experiencing. That as I walk through this road that is treacherous called life, God sees me, he knows me, he hears me, he understands me, he's with me, he, he, he cares for me cares for you. And one of the ways God expresses his care and love for us is he gives us community. He gives us one another so we can walk together 
And I, I can say to you, like, when you come to me and share your burden with me, it's really tempting for us pastoral types just to lead out with advice. Well, do this. Have you tried this? Here's this promise. And, and there's a place for that, but it's not as we're sharing with each other. The get, we can choose to listen to each other rather than try to fix each other. And there's, there's, there's validation in that. Where we say, I'm hearing what you're tro- what's troubling your soul, Pastor Humphreys, uh, uh, Jason. And, and I, I see you. I, I hear you. And I want to validate that. That sucks. That's painful. That's hard. And I wish it was different, but I will walk with you in it. I'm not in your shoes, but, but just know this. I want to f- be a good friend. I want to see you and hear you. That's one of the ways God expresses that he sees you that he hears you, that he cares for you as he gives you brothers and sisters to hold the tension and the pain with you. It doesn't fix it, but it gives us strength and courage to keep walking together with Jesus. So much more I'd love to say. So come at 2 p.m. It'll be a different conversation, but we'll talk more. But beyond theory, I just want you to know if, if you're here today, given where I was born through no choice of mine, given uh, the melanin or lack thereof in my skin, I've not experienced a, the oppression many of you have. So maybe I'm really limited in my ability to be helpful. And as Pastor Humphreys and I were talking about this passage, he, he, he was sharing with me, you know, Matt, there's a strong word to the Abrahams and the Sarahs of this world. People in positions of privilege and power are called to account for how they use their privilege and their power. So if you've suffered because of oppression... I'm sorry, it's not fair, it's not right, it's not the way things are supposed to be. Pepani, Pepani, I'm sorry, Pepani. Brothers and sisters, Pepani. We trust the promise that there is a day coming when it will not be this way. For God will call it to account. And things will be the way he intends there to be. And so we long for that day even as we seek to be faithful in this day. To be family. To be brothers and sisters to choose to listen to one another, not try to fix each other, and to walk faithfully together with the God who sees us and cares for us. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, we come before you Lord, I pray that for us, 
you would allow us to see you clearly, more clearly maybe than we have before, to understand an aspect of who you are that we haven't understood before, and Lord, to account, encounter you in a fresh way right now, the God who moves towards us in love, the God who sees us, the God who cares for us. the God who ultimately is making all things new. So I pray for my brothers and sisters here who are suffering today, hurting today. We, we, we hold on to your promise that you are close to the brokenhearted. So I ask, Lord, that they would experience you being especially close to them. And that today and this week, that you would move in such a way in their life very personally and very tangibly to show them the truth of that. That you see, that you hear, that you understand and that you're with them and that you love them. Would you show them in ways that are unique to them? That's how good you are. That's how kind you are. It's your kindness, Lord, that leads us to repentance, to turn, to change, to be open your kindness. So may we experience your kindness today. And may we be representatives of your kindness today and this week. May those who are coming to Afulu on Thursday experience tangibly the kindness, the goodness, the beauty that you are, Jesus, through music and song and celebration and art. Be on full display, Jesus. And may we lift you up there in such a way that you draw all people to yourself because you are the one, Lord, our souls long for. Fill our emptiness. We are thirsty. And so we come to you, we look to you and drink deeply. Living water, fill us, Lord, with your presence. We ask this and pray in Jesus' name. And the church said,